How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. The bird also has found a house, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. How blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. How blessed is the man whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. Passing through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. The early rain also covers it with blessings. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Selah. Behold our shield, O God, and look upon the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I had rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of, the, of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord God gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, how blessed is the man who, man who trusts in you. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are our strength our shield, Father God, a fortress to us. We thank you that all that you call us to, that all that your word prescribes, Father, that you faithfully provide the strength to carry it out, that our responsibility as children is to yield and to be yielded unto you, as a vine is yielded unto, or as a branch is yielded unto the vine, Father. So we also are to be yielded unto you, that we may bear fruits of righteousness, that we may resist the enemy. Father God, it is my prayer, it is our prayer, that as we go through the word this morning, Father, that you would speak, that your words would reign preeminent in the hearts and minds of those who are yielded unto you. Father God, that you would teach and instruct this morning. Father God, we thank you in advance that you are our shepherd. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Y'all may be seated. How blessed is the man whose strength is in you. How blessed is the man who trusts in you. Um, this morning I want to be going over 1 Kings 11, uh, chapters 11 through 13. That's 1 Kings chapter 11 through 13. And really, it, there's two men in focus in these chapters. And that is Jeroboam, um, who is to be the king of Israel, at least the ten tribes. This is just after... Uh, the Lord has split Israel in two because Solomon has allowed for idol worship in the land and he, he has punishment as discipline for Israel. He is going to split the nation into two, uh, into two parts, two tribes being of the house of David, which is Judah and Benjamin, and the remaining uh, going to Jeroboam. But um, really, you know, when, I, when we're talking about these two men, we're really talking about two men in the scripture who believed for a time that you know, the Lord was their strength, but after a while they looked away and, and were taken captive by the enemy. And really as you see the two, uh, or at least in terms of the man of God, you don't, really see, um, you don't really see a logical, at least when you look at the scripture, it doesn't provide uh, a reason or any justification for the man who turns away from the Lord, who from the man of God who turns away from the Lord in disobedience. And I don't think any should be given for him. But um, these two passages really talk about, I think they really address the nature of temptation in that we do not resist the enemy or, or uh, false prophets or false teachers in the power of our intellect. But we resist and we stand firm against the enemy by the grace of God by the Spirit of God who imparts His power to us. And so these, these two men are really examples of that, uh, how, how to go right in one respect and how to go wrong in another. Um, so these two men, um, again, they believed the Lord to be their strength and they trusted in the Lord, I believe, for a time, but looked away and were taken captive. Um, so let's go ahead and look at Jeroboam for a second, 
If you want to turn, if you haven't already, turn to 1 Kings 11, 13. Let me get there also. (laughs) Okay, so essentially Solomon really likes Jeroboam. Um, He's employed in the courts of Solomon. And so uh, he's a promising young man, much in the same way that Saul was. And so Solomon puts him in charge of a lot of stuff. And um, the Lord also sees him as a candidate, as a king of Israel. And um, the Lord is about to split the house. And so if you look at um, 11, uh, verse 30, um, Jeroboam is, is leaving Jerusalem. He walks out of Jerusalem. And Ahijah, the Shilonite, uh, he's a prophet. He finds him. And uh, he had clothed himself with a new cloak. And they were both alone in the field together. And so he's got this brand new jacket, new cloak. And then Ahijah took hold of the new cloak which was on him and tore it into 12 pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself 10 pieces. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and give you 10 tribes. And so uh, the house of Solomon, the house of David, again, they were to keep Judah and Benjamin and the other remaining were to go to Jeroboam. And he lists his reasons, reasons as he goes on, the Lord does, through Ahijah. He says, because they have forsaken me and have worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, uh, Shemosh, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god, the sons of Ammon. And they have not walked in my ways. Uh, he goes on in verse 35, I will take the kingdom from his son's hand and give it to you, even ten tribes. But to his son, I will give one tribe besides the one that he has, which was Benjamin, that my servant David may have a lamp always before me in Jerusalem. I will take you, and, and verse 37, I will, take you, uh, I will take you and you shall reign over whatever you desire, and you shall be king over Israel. Then it will be that if you listen to all that I command you and walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight by observing my statues and my commands as my servant David did, Then I will be with you and will build you an enduring house as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. So Jeroboam has just been given a great promise um, via Ahijah from the Lord. And um, we have also been given not just a promise, but the fulfillment of that promise. um, That we should have not just, you know, physical things, uh, that we should have not physical things, but Christ Jesus, who is our Lord. And in him, uh, we have been given an abundance, a great abundance. Um, And so, like Jeroboam, though, we have been given a word, just as we've been given a physical word. Um, And uh, we'll go on here. Solomon, uh, Solomon after this, after hearing that Ahijah just prophesied to him, uh, sought, therefore, to put Jeroboam to death, but Jeroboam arose to, uh, and fled to Egypt until the death of Solomon. So uh, Solomon dies, uh, and Rehoboam takes his place, um, but the people don't listen to Rehoboam and, um, because he ignores the counsel of his elders. He ignores the counsel of his elders, and he goes with the counsel of the young men there. And it says, he spoke to them according to the advice of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. And so at this point, Israel just throws up their hands and they say, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. And so he's like, Everyone go home. Um, Then the king Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was over the forced labor, and all, all of Israel stoned him to death. So that didn't go too well. Um, it came about when all of Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned. They sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over Israel. Uh, more than this, so God is already making good on the promises that he's given Jeroboam. And would that Jeroboam would have continued to trust in the Lord rather than in his, uh, in his um, cunning Uh, to secure his throne. Unfortunately, he doesn't. Um, It says, uh, 
here that Rehoboam hears that um, Israel has just crowned him king. And so he rounds up all of Judah and 180,000 chosen men who are warriors. And then Shemiah, or Shemamiah, I can't really say that, Shemamiah in verse 22, uh, he was a man of God and he came to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah. And he says, thus says the Lord in verse 24, you must not go up and fight against your relatives, the sons of Israel. Return every man to his house, for this thing has come from me. So they listened to the word of the Lord and returned and uh, returned and went their way according to the word of the Lord. So I know I've given a lot of backdrop here, but I think, um, I think it's important for the, um, the points that I think that the scripture is emphasizing here. Um, Jeroboam, and this is just after the Feast of Booths, everyone makes a pilgrimage in Israel to go to Jerusalem and make sacrifices unto the Lord. Well, this, this gets on Jeroboam's nerves because he's worried that Rehoboam in Jerusalem is, is uh, you know, glad-handing and, you know, handing out fruit by the foot and trying to get, uh, you know, people's allegiance. And so he's worried that the people will, uh, their hearts will turn back to Rehoboam. And so instead of reminding himself of the promises that the Lord had made unto him, instead of uh, reminding himself of the, uh, just how the Lord has paved the way for him thus far. He liter- the Lord literally stopped a war from happening, happening a civil war, uh, by his word. It's, it's miraculous. But instead of uh, reckoning upon those things, um, he goes to his, his counselors, and um, after he's been consulted, in verse 28, he made two golden calves, um, and he said to them, he said to all of Israel, you know, they've, they've probably just come back from the Feast of Booths, and he says to all of Israel, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold your gods, O Israel, that brought you up from the land of Egypt. And so Jeroboam, he's an industrious man. He's a valiant warrior. He, again, he reminds me a lot of Saul, and this is very much... Uh, I think this very much mirrors um, what happened to Saul uh, with Samuel in that he was told to wait for the prophet Samuel before making the sacrifices and he feared the people instead and was disobedient. And Samuel's word to him was, obedience is better than sacrifice. Um, so the question that I, you know, I want to postulate, I mean, it seems obvious you know, uh, why... I mean, Jeroboam's line of thinking here. He wanted to create idols so that people would be gathered to him and around him that would secure his position and uh, secure his position as king. And so he's completely disregarded all that the Lord has done in paving the way for him. And he's gone forward in his own strength and his own might. And he says, you know, I will secure what the Lord has promised by my own cunning and, you know, by the men that have counseled me as well. And so the question that you have to ask is why? And I think this is something that, you know, at least in my life I can see happening and occurring, um, you know, from time to time, um, if not daily. But it says he, you know, what I put here is he believed it was the favor of man that held his position and not the Lord. And that's why he fell into sin, is because he believed that it was men holding him and his own devices uh, and not the Lord. And I think, you know, that that'll preach. I think that, you know, in our own hearts, we're presented not so much with, uh, you know, golden calves to worship, but I think uh, our idols, I mean, if you could say they're more refined, they kind of cut right to the chase. Like instead of worshiping an alligator for prosperity, we just we worship prosperity. Um, and we idolize, I think, institutions that would grant us, uh, that we think would grant us those things. And, um, and so, you know, for me, uh, you know, just in, in, in you know, working and, and having a job and people having expectations, it's easy for me to get distracted. It's easy for me to believe 
that I'm held instead of by my Lord, I'm held by, you know, my superiors, or I'm held by my conduct, or I'm held by, uh, you know, my, my own intellect and my own, um, you know, my own abilities. It's easy to believe that because, I mean, that's how the world approaches us. You know, it says, you know, it comes to us and says, you know, turn these stones into bread that you might live, you know. And I think, you know, we, you know, we are given those, those temptations, those come as temptations to us. Um, and, you know, just an example here, like a couple of weeks ago, I was frustrated with every customer that <laughs> came in. And I was, you know, really, you know, and I had to ask myself, like, I felt like my emotions were getting all riled up and, you know, I, I felt irritated when customers would come by and I would just feel like, I just want to get my work done. You know, I'm out of balance or whatever. And I work at a bank, by the way. Um, and, you know, I would get more and more frustrated. And I had to take a step back and I'm like, why am I so frustrated? You know, what, like, what is the deal? I, you know, I thought I was abiding. I thought I was walking with the Lord, but suddenly I'm, I'm frustrated and angry. And what is the deal? And the Lord, the Lord convicted my heart on that. And it was because at somewhere down the line, I decided that my, my work and, and what I do and how well I do it that is what holds me. Um, that is what keep me, keeps me. And so every customer that would come in was really just another opportunity for failure. And so I was just like, oh, keep them away, keep them away. You know, I want to get my work done. I don't want to have to, to, to deal with this. But the Lord, I think, convicted me on that and showed me the root of it. And the root was that somewhere down the line, I decided that something other than Christ is what held me. And I think this is the, the subtle way that Satan comes to us, the world flesh and the devil comes to us with temptation, and that it subtly introduces the idea that we need more than Christ. We need more than Jesus. And, you know, the, to put a stop to that, we must stand in the Spirit of God. It is by faith. And um, it is when we stand in the Spirit that we do not uh, carry out the deeds of the flesh. Um, and I forgot what verse references that. But um, So, you know, Again, our idols are, I guess, more refined. We don't worship, you know, images and animals and things like that as, as uh, the ancients did. But we do worship, rather, what they stand for. Um, so, you know, how do we know if it's an idol? Um, what I've been able to see is that, you know, we know it's an idol if we worry over it. If it's something other than Christ, we will worry over it. Um, and what you fear is ultimately what you worship as well. Um, so how do we make an idol in our hearts? We stop seeing Christ as everything we need. We take our eyes off him, and we see life as being something other than Christ. And so again, the world approaches us and says, here's life, come here, you know? Life is having the right job, it's making a lot of money. Life is, you know, being in favor with everybody around you. It's being a superstar at work, you know? These things make for life and peace. And I'm reminded of when Jesus approaches Jerusalem, it's, you know, it's the, uh, when he approaches on the donkey, and he says, Oh, Israel, that you would know the things that make for peace. And Israel at the time is, you know, they're expecting a conquering king. They say, you know, they, they expect a deliverer. They expect somebody who can deliver them circumstantially. But Christ is saying that I am the way, the truth, and the life. That your life is not held in circumstances, it's held in me. And where we turn aside from that, we build idols in our hearts. And that has a fruit in, in worry and fear and in sin. And we have things, you know, things that uh, I'm confronted with, things that the world says, hey, you have every right to worry about these things. Aren't you concerned about these things, you know? And it's by faith, not logic. It's by intellect, or it's by the Spirit of God, not intellect, and the grace of God, that puts a stop to those things and says, no, my God is sufficient and my God is enough. And I can be content where I'm at. And that's why it says, be thankful in everything. You know, it's implying in that verse that there is no situation where I'm justified in not being thankful. There is no situation that I could be in where I am robbed. But if I am robbed, if I feel like I have lost life, where have I placed it? Where have I put it that it could be taken from me? I've put it 
in the idols around me. I have built an image. And instead of seeing God as the one who holds me, I see something else as being something that holds me. And I can't believe I'm doing this, but I'm, I'm quoting a line from the Avenger movie from Marvel, um, where Loki says, Loki's speaking to all the people, and he says, you are made to be ruled. And I, you know, I hear that, and I'm like, no truer words were spoken from a movie. Um, I'm sorry, guys, I, I had to. But it says, you will be, essentially, you will be ruled by something. And we don't passively look away from Christ. We look away from Christ and cling to something else. And when we do that, we are susceptible to temptation. When we do that, we fall. Not because of um, a lapse in willpower or, you know, the, uh, being, you know, having finesse in, in, in arguments and, and, you know, knowing enough. We don't fall from not knowing enough. We fall from not clinging to the Savior. We fall from not standing in the Spirit. And I think it's interesting, too, because it talks about how, you know, it does, the New Testament, there's a lot of warnings and, and, and um, I guess, uh, I'm not encouraged, well, I guess encouragement, a lot of warnings against false prophets, against false teachers. And it's all throughout the New Testament. But the New Testament doesn't list every single way that you might fall. There's one narrow way, and Jesus says, I'm the narrow way, but he doesn't go into detail at, as to how many other different ways that you can go, right? And so that, to me, says that we are not held by what we know, because if it was in here, if, if we needed to know it, it'd be in here. Um, anyway, so he puts a golden calf in Dan and another in Bethel, and the Feast of Booths, which was just finished, uh, is on the 15th day of the seventh month. Um, he decides to make his own feast on the 15th day of the eighth month. So, ooh, you know, uh, he, he sees that as being significant. So he says, you know, it's too far for y'all to go to Jerusalem. Just come here and we'll worship these two cows that I put up. That's great. So we go on. Um, he's offering sacrifices and incense on the altar, and this is where we get to the man of God, okay? First Kings 13, 1. Now behold, there came a man of God from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord. While Jeroboam was standing by the altar to burn incense, he cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. Um, I'll go on here in a second. It mentions Josiah, who's supposed to come 300-ish years later, and he does, and it's a prophecy that foretells that Josiah is basically going to come and clean house. Um, A lot of scholars debate, or at least the commentators that I've read, uh, they all bring this verse into question. Um, basically, because Kings was written around the time of Josiah, they postulate that, well, somebody retroactively applied the name in there, you know, because God can't be too exact, and, you know, there's that whole free will thing, and God can't really know how people are going to behave in the future because, you know, that's like predestination or whatever. I don't know. But... All I know is is that we need this kind of commentary like we need a hole in the head. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, it, it's like I was talking with a coworker about elbolution. Uh, evolution, I call it elbolution. I don't know why. Um, and, you know, it's, it's this idea that you can, you can have your cake and eat it too. Like, if you're unbelieving and don't believe that the Lord created the earth in seven days... And I'm kind of going on a side tangent here, but I think it's important, and it ties into my, one of my points, which is we don't cling to an intellect, we cling to the Lord. But, um, you know, she, she said, well, you know, we, you know, it says seven days, but, you know, that, how, do, how do we know what a day is? You know, the day the Lord could be, you know, 
It could be a million years. And why not evolution, you know? Uh, and, you know, I'm just, I'm just keeping an open mind. I don't really see that as, as being open-minded. I see it in terms of how you view your God, very closed-minded. Um, but, um, you know, she, she made that point. She made the point that, you know, it could just be seven days, or seven days could mean like, you know, seven million years, seven billion trillion years. We'll just keep adding years on to make it, make it more likely. <laughs> um, but, you know, when you read any book, right? You trust, well, the author, you trust the author that he knows his audience, okay? Um, when he mentions the word day, that's what he means. He doesn't mean a year. He doesn't mean a thousand years. And when God wrote this book, and I do mean the Lord, by the hands of his prophets and teachers and, and preachers, he doesn't make any mistakes. All, all of scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching. Um, he doesn't make any mistakes. And so when you read something, you trust that the author knows his audience. And it's this kind of speculation um, that is really indicative of a heart that has moved away from uh, a relationship. And really all of, you know, is it, is it predestination? Is it, is it free will? Well, if you have a God you can understand, I, I, I wonder if any, he's any God at all. You know, and all these pointless debates, they, they drive you into division. They drive a wedge between your brothers and sisters. It's easy, you know, it's easy to get caught up in that stuff. But God works his will through the free will of man, is my take on it. And, you know, once you've got that figured out, I mean, well, you're not going to figure that out. I don't, you know, yeah. <laughs> God works everything together for good in your life. You try and figure that out, you know. And... We don't need a God that we understand. We need a God that we trust. And so a lot of these commentators, you know, they say, well, it was retro. Josiah was put in retroactively because, you know, there's no way God could know how a person will behave and act. You know, but much of, much of truth is very much, I, I would think, a contradiction. You know, like God works his will through the free will of man. Well, you know, I am one person, yet I'm made up of many parts. That's a contradiction. And, you know, you think of all the paradoxes that Christ brings into the picture. And so the whole of truth is not one camp or the other. It's made whole in Christ. But we don't cling to an idea or philosophy or orthodoxy. We cling to the Lord. Um, anyway, that was kind of a side tangent. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if, if that sounded coherent or not. Maybe I'm just gabbing away here. Um, and so, uh, we need to take scripture at face value. Um, we need to trust that when God says this is his word, it's his word. And if there's anything to the contrary in here, we have a shepherd who will make it known to us, don't we? You know, we, it's really this, this godless thinking that gets us into these traps. Because we think that we have to maintain what we understand about Christian orthodoxy. We think we have to have all our ducks in a row in terms of arguments and and, uh, and, and, and theology and all this, this different stuff. Blah. We just need Jesus. That's all we need. And I'm not speaking against talking about those things or studying those things. I think that's valuable. I think that's good. But beware of anybody that camps there instead of the person of Christ. Beware of anyone that says, by this you will know. You know? Beware of anybody that says, lean on your own understanding and in all ways acknowledge my theology and it will make your path straight. Okay? Because that's not what the scripture says. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Um, and so, at this point, Jeroboam, you know, all of Israel's there, and the prophet, the man of God, has just cried out against him, and Jeroboam is, you know, he's like, seize him. And right as he says that, the altar breaks, um, ashes pour out, just as, the, uh, just as the man of God had foretold. And his hand shrivels up so that he cannot draw back to himself. I, I guess, you know, when I first read it, I got the image like his hand was like kind of stuck there. But, you know, it could have just fallen limp and like he couldn't like draw it back to himself. I don't know. That's my sanctified imagination. But I think um, he, after this, he says, please entreat the Lord your God, your God. Like he's already disowned him. He's like, this is your God now. And pray for me 
uh, that my hand may be restored to me, so that the man of God, uh, for me, that my hand may be restored to me. So the man of God, in, in, verse, uh, in verse 6 here, uh, wow, it's easy to get lost. So the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him, and it became as it was before. And then the king repented, and there was much rejoicing. No, he doesn't repent. He says, hey, uh, I'm going to save my face here, so um, if you want to come home with me like we're pals, because uh, uh, all of Israel just witnessed a great miraculous sign, so I need all of Israel to think that you're on my side, so why don't you come home with me, and we'll eat, and we'll drink, and uh, be merry. And the man of God says, um, um, let's see here, in verse 8, But the man of God said to the king, If you were to give me half your house, I would not go with you, nor would I eat bread or drink water in this place. For so it was commanded by the word of the Lord, or the word of the Lord saying, You shall eat no bread, nor drink water, nor return by the way which you came. And so he's coming up from Judah through Bethel. He's moving up northward. He's not to go back by the way which he came. And this command that came by the Lord was intended to be a sign unto Israel that the Lord does not approve of their unbelief. He does not approve of their idol worship. Um, And he was, the man of God was to be a living uh, demonstration of the Lord's disdain and disapproval for the actions of unbelieving Israel. Um, So, you know, what happened? So, he goes on his merry way um, after that. Uh, Now we read in verse 11, 13, 11, that now an old prophet was living in Bethel, and his sons came and told him all the deeds which the man of God had done that day in Bethel, the words which he had spoken to the king, these also they related to their father. So, observation number one, his sons were there, but his father was not. Um, you know, you can take that or leave it. I don't think the scripture is emphasizing um, any particular, uh, I don't think it's, it's talking about any, um, you know, what we should do, like like any examples of, bad parenting or anything here, but I think that, um, you know, I think of uh, Eli and his sons and how they were disobedient, um, and so their, their sons say, hey, listen, we, we, we heard this guy, we even saw where he left to, and uh, then he said to his son, saddle the donkey for me, in verse 13, so they saddled his donkey, and he went after him, he went after the man of God, and he found him sitting under an oak. And he said to him, Are you the man of God who came from Judah? And the man of God said, I am. And then he said to him, Come home with me and eat bread. He said, I cannot return with you, nor go with you, nor will I eat bread or drink water with you in this place. For a command came, by, uh, came to me by the word of the Lord, You shall eat no bread nor drink water there. Do not return by going the way which you came. He said to him, uh, that is the old man, uh, he said, I am also a prophet like you. Oh, okay. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with you to your house, that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. And so scripture is very clear here. He did not hear a word from the Lord. Um, This isn't even the Lord trying to tempt him. This is a false prophet. This is a deceiver sent by the enemy. And so uh, the man of God says, okay, and he goes back with him, uh, and he goes back to his house, and he eats and drinks water. And so while they were there, uh, and this reminds me very much of Balaam's uh, donkey situation where his donkey starts gabbing. I really, uh, you know, the Lord can use anything to speak, um, even, even this guy. And so the old man suddenly just has a moment. They're like sitting there eating, and he, he just has a moment and he starts speaking. He says, Thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the command of the Lord and have not observed the commandment which the Lord your God commanded you, but have returned and eaten bread and drunk water in the place of which he said to you, Eat no bread and drink no water. Your body shall not come to the grave of your fathers. Ouch. You know, I, 
I look at this and, it, and from a fleshly standpoint, it really just, it looks like his word against the other word. You know, God told me this, God told me this. I'm a prophet like you. He might as well just said, you know, we went to the same Bible school together. Um, and so it's, it's, a, it's a difficult passage in that respect, but you can see here what it's saying almost by what it leaves out, and that is the specifics and, 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 and the man of God's line of thinking and how, he, uh, and how he came to a logical intellect, a logical conclusion as to why that would be the best choice. Um, the scripture doesn't outline that. It just says, okay, I believe you, and he goes on his merry way. And so we, you know, we see this as, uh, you know, ouch, this is kind of a harsh punishment, you know. Maybe, maybe he was justified, you know. After all, he was told a lie, and, you know, why shouldn't we believe a lie? Well, you know, when we look at this, there's a temptation to believe that, you know, we, um, you know, we need to know more, and we need to, uh, we need to know in the ways of how we will be tempted so we can logically have the right standpoint and resist the enemy. But I think the scripture here is emphasizing, um, you know, and we see here that the, the Lord knows that he disobeyed. There's no justification for this guy in the Lord's eyes. He's like, you definitely disobeyed. Um, and so we see here um, afterwards, uh, he leaves the house and um, he saddled the donkey. The old prophet saddled the donkey for the man of God. He probably took his donkey. I don't know. <laughs> I know I would. I'd be kind of mad. I'd be like, oh, you know, <laughs> I'm taking your car. Um, uh, now when the man of God had gone, a lion met him on the way and killed him. And his body was thrown on the road with the donkey standing beside it. The lion also was standing beside the body. Ouch. You know, you read that and, and um, we think of it as being a bit harsh. Um, but, you know, um, it's not harsh from a God of love. God knows exactly what Israel needed. And this man was to be a demonstration of God's disdain. And as he was coming home with the prophet back to Bethel, the false prophet back to Bethel, all of Israel would have seen him coming back against the word of the Lord that was spoken. And so, it, you know, it reminds me very much of um, 2 Samuel uh, 12, 13 through 16. Uh, you know, after David's sin with Bathsheba, and he's about to have a child, and Nathan speaks to him, and, uh, or David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan said to David, the Lord has also taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. And this, these are very sad things, but we tend to think of death as being the most finite, most terrible thing that could be on the earth. And so, you know, such a harsh punishment. No, a harsh punishment would be allowing for, uh, you know, God seemingly to support the sin in David's life, the sin in this man of God's life, that others would be led astray, that others would follow down the same path of unbelief and disbelief. And you see all throughout the Old Testament, God executing judgment on the sons of Israel and on other nations as well. And, you know, it's, it's like those arguments that I hear for, uh, you know, you know they, see, they see this separation between the God of the New Testament and the God of the Old Testament. And they say, oh, well, you know, there's a God of love and then there's a God of wrath and anger and, you know, and all these things. They don't know what love is if it hit him in the head like a brick. Um, the love of God is God and every activity that he has. Everything that he does is from a heart of love. And so the Lord decides to take the man of God home and to save Israel from further judgment and to save Israel from further temptation. But how do we, you know, again, it's difficult because the man of God fell, but it sounds like his word against the false prophet's word. Um, and again, this comes back to what I'm telling you is that we do not resist temptation in the power of intellect. Uh, if you would turn to 1 John 4, 1 through 4.
It says, um, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out, gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess that uh, confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that is coming, and now and now it is already in the world. And so we have been um, we've been given um, kind of what is the word I'm thinking of? We've been given uh, a prescription. Thank you. A prescription uh, for how we resist the enemy how we test to see whether a spirit is true or false. Um, and it is by the Spirit of God. And it reminds me very much of prayer. You know, give, uh, pray to the Lord at all times. And then it says you don't even know how to pray. And so the things that the, the Scripture uh, prescribes, the things that we are to do, we are completely incapable of doing. And again, he doesn't go into detail like what every spirit might do. He doesn't list every other path besides the narrow way. He just says to test the spirits to see their, well, good luck. You know, you're going you're gonna to wage war with your intellect, for, you know, with, you know, who knows what, um, a spirit that's been around since the foundations of the world. Yeah, good luck with that. You know, all of these things, what the Lord calls us to, um, what he prescribes, faithful is he who calls us, who will also do. Um, and so, again, back to, to discipline, uh, you know, it's interesting to me when you read further on, it doesn't seem like the false prophet gets anything out of it, you know? And so, again, the temptation is to believe that, you know, well, maybe the, the hammer fell the wrong way. But if you look at me, um, oh, look at, look at me, look at First Peter, uh, Chapter 4, verse 17 here. And uh, I'm just going to go ahead and read it. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So judgment begins with us. And it's very much the Lord disciplining his children because he chastises and even scourges those that he loves. And, um, you know, Hebrews 12, 5 through 8, I'm just going to read it. And, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what, God, what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So I really think God deals with the man of God as, as his child. And I really also believe that we'll see the man of God in heaven one day. Um, but again, back to that temptation there, it's very much, you know, it sounds like his word against the other man's word. Um, because both say that the Lord said it. And so it's really not about uh, clinging to a word then. It can't be a word that we cling to. It really must be the person of Christ, you know. And it really comes back to our orientation as children. We don't know. And so we have a father, a shepherd, who will instruct us. And we're called to stand in the spirit. And it reminds me very much of when Jesus was uh, tempted in the wilderness. And, you know, this prophet could have quoted or the man of God could have quoted at the prophet Deuteronomy 8.3, which says every word that passes from the Lord, you know, um, man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that passes from the mouth of God. He could have said that much. But, you know, even when Jesus was in the desert, Satan was tempting him with scripture, of all things. You know, there's really, there's no power in and of ourselves to resist the enemy. But we are called to stand in Christ. We are called to stand in the spirit of God. And he extinguishes the flaming arrows of our enemy. 
he puts to death, and we are called to take captive as well. And I think it's so cool how Israel's kind of a picture of the human soul, in a way, how the kingdom of Israel, and then, and then Jesus says, you know, the kingdom of God is within you. And, you know, and so you can think of Israel, the nation, as just like a giant soul in its own way. And how we've been called over into newness of life. We have been rescued from slavery and brought into the promised land. And the promised land is ours. And the Lord calls us to go forth and seize it. And we see giants in the land and we say, you know, it is not within us to do. And the Lord says, exactly, that's my point. You know, the Lord has been, or the, the land has been conquered technically, but there are still giants in the land for you to take. It is your responsibility to take hold of these things. And so our responsibility then is not to a word, a discipline. Uh, it is not to uh, proper doctrine, though do- proper doctrine is a part of it. It is primarily to the person. And proper doctrine will always exemplify, or amplify, magnify the person and importance of clinging to Jesus Christ. Um, and preach death and re- his death and resurrection and his uh, resurrection in us. And so... Really, that's what I wanted to talk to you all about, is how we resist the temptations of the enemy. Um, he goes on um, further, further after the, the prophet of God is, or the man of God is killed. Uh, he's basically, it's on the road, and it's a, it's a miraculous thing because he sees you know, people passing by. It's probably a main highway. People are passing by. They just see a lion standing there and a donkey standing there over the man of God's corpse. And so it's definitely a sign to Israel. And all of Israel, at least those unbelieving, would have recognized him because the unbelieving would have been at, you know, worshiping with Jeroboam at the altar of the two calves. And so Israel's passing by and they're like, whoa, what what the heck, you know? His sons see it, uh, the false prophet's sons see it. They come back to the false prophet and they say, hey, uh, so that guy you were eating lunch with, um, a lion totally got him. And the prophet, the false prophet says, um, oh, where is it? Um, now, when the prophet who brought him back from the way heard it, he said, it is the man of God who disobeyed the command of the Lord. Therefore, the Lord has given him to the lion, which has torn him and killed him according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to him. Um, so then, again, this is another example of how the Lord can use just about anything to speak. Um, the Lord can use... Balaam's donkey, and the Lord can definitely use this man um, as a witness. And so he has the uh, man of God's bones buried with his bones. Um, and then you see later in, in 2 Kings, you don't have to turn there, but uh, where is it? Well, it's in 2 Kings when Josiah comes onto the scene. Um, they're all taking out the bones and everything, and there's one tomb that they don't disturb, and they're like, well, it's because, uh, you know, it's the man of God, essentially, who's in that tomb, who prophesied of the things that you're doing. And he says, leave it alone. So in that, you know, the false prophet's bones were preserved. But in all this, um, we have a mighty fortress. We have a God who keeps us. And it is by looking to him as life and life abundant that we resist the enemy. And it is by looking to him as life and life abundant, standing in the truth of who we are as Christians, as children of God, that we, that we resist him and bear fruits of righteousness. So I heard the bell. I'm going to go ahead and pray now. Father God, we thank you for your life and the abundance of it. We thank you, Father, that you are our teacher, our guide, and our friend, that you are also our Father as well, and that you do discipline and reprove us as sons. We thank you, Father, for that, that you are so intimately involved with every detail of our life, that you work everything out together for good, and that the scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching what you would have to say. We love you and thank you, Father, for all that you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen. Y'all would stand and join us.
are the treasure that I seek. You are my all in all. Taking you as a precious jewel, Lord, to give up I'd be a fool. You are my all in all. Jesus, Lamb of God, worthy is your name. Jesus, Lamb of Oh uh-huh.